If you've ever walked down the Strand in London, you'll have walked past the Royal Courts of Justice. Along that walk, you'll probably have seen camera crews and journalists bunched up waiting or interviewing people leaving the court. They're as permanent as the street lights or the famous zebra crossing upon which lawyers will cross in and out of the court to argue their client's case. The lawyers, they're bewigged and they're smartly suited. And when, after a case, they come to address the gathered media, they sound as smart as they look. Most of these lawyers want the media circus done and dusted quickly. Most, but not all. Back in 2003, in the mid-afternoon sun, out steps a man who breaks that mould. Unlike the plummy lawyers who've come before and who will continue to come afterwards, here's a short, balding, brash-looking, cockney-sounding gent who's just royally embarrassed the British legal establishment. He's surrounded by an eclectic-looking entourage as he opens his mouth and utters, As you are all aware, the appeal of Nicholas Van Hoogstraten was heard today before Lord Justice Rose, Mr Justice McComb and Mrs Justice Cox. That appeal was successful and the conviction for manslaughter was quashed. This man, this lawyer, has just successfully overturned the manslaughter conviction of a then rogue landlord called Nicholas Van Hoogstraten on a technicality, setting him free. He's taken on the justice system to free a man that most would have been happy to keep in prison. And for the benefit of a visual, he's enjoying every last moment of it. But that's what this man does. If you're a criminal or in a sticky situation, he's firmly positioned himself as your go-to man. The devil's advocate, Mr. Murder, the lawyer for the unlawyerable. So if you're a serious criminal in deep trouble, who do you call? You call Giovanni Di Stefano. This is Giovanni Di Stefano in the battle uh, to free Charles Bronson. The fact that I mix with criminals doesn't make me one. I'm their lawyer. I, I should be known as Mr. Murder. Who the hell's going to come looking for you in a war zone? But there's another side to Giovanni Di Stefano. There's rumour that his whole life has been one big con that this hero of the villains wasn't actually a lawyer, that he won cases and duped the legal system with no qualifications whatsoever. A man whose whole life has straddled a line somewhere between truth and fiction, a life of warlords and gangsters, football and show business. He's a man whose tales you won't quite believe. My name is Callum McRae. I'm a journalist and I'm a podcast producer and I'm going to tell you a story about that man. I'm going to tell you a story about that man's son and his search for some kind of truth. And somewhere within all that, you'll hear about my search for that truth too. A journey which took me to a remote village in Italy via Brad Pitt, Scottish football, a multi-million dollar fraud, and even links to the Secret Service. I can't promise we got to the truth, but I tried. I really tried. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Swindler, Saviour, Mobster, Spy. Episode 1, The Devil's Advocate. So is this where you work? 
this um, your kind of when office? When my kids aren't here, this is where um, I would normally work. My name is Michael De Stefano, but in theory, my, I am Michele. Michael Di Stefano, or to give him his full name, Michele Santino Di Stefano, son of Giovanni, is where this story begins. He's the reason I'm on this journey, making this podcast, because Michael is on a mission of his own to get to the bottom of the enigma that is his father. The five foot six, seven, bold, chubby Italian doesn't just walk into those situations. I can't make sense of how that happens. Ever since Michael was little, he's known that his dad wasn't like any other dad. He didn't take Michael on the school run. He wasn't there on parents' evening. Dad was always busy overseas doing business. He was definitely working. He was definitely busy. Um, what he actually did, I have no idea. His mysterious, exotic ways extended into Michael's adulthood right up to the present day. But it was a few years ago, in a courtroom, when Giovanni, dad, was being sent to jail that Michael came to be in possession of something that would spark his quest. When the, the judge has sentenced him and he's being taken into custody, I remember him taking off his rings, passing me the rings. He's got this like gold pair of Cartier glasses. He hands me the glasses and then the hard drive. Michael was devastated that his dad was going away for a while, but the hard drive gave Michael the opportunity for the first time to interrogate his dad's secretive past. On it is everything from Giovanni's life. A treasure trove of documents and correspondence with warlords and celebrities, world leaders and criminals. You know, he hands me this pouch, a little bit like this one, take this. And I... I felt in that moment empowered, a little bit like I wanted to see where it went. Where it went? Well, that's what we're about to unravel. Now, I'm a fan of lists, and the careers of Giovanni De Stefano makes for an amazing list. He's been a Hollywood mogul, a general in a Yugoslav army, a music producer, a football club owner, an international business magnate, a singer, it's a story which has given me more than a few headaches. I'm just at the end of a long and weird day doing some background research for this new story I'm working on. Uh, I'm telling you now, if you're looking to drive yourself a little nuts, to spend a day or two in the company of Giovanni De Stefano's Wikipedia and YouTube pages. But it's a path littered with anomalies facts that are hard to verify, accounts that don't quite add up. There are parts where the only explanation is one that Michael isn't sure he even wants to contemplate. Can you be that consistently lucky? I, I believe he had a helping hand along the way. I've spent many an hour in this flat, in Michael's company, asking him some difficult questions and digging into some difficult subjects. But the first thing I did was to acquaint myself with the version of Giovanni De Stefano that you may have heard about. The lawyer. The man who's willing to defend the indefensible. And to do that, I had to speak to some other people too. Hi, I'm so sorry. Not at all. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. How was your trip? It was fine. Yeah? Good. Yeah, Is this all right? Take a yeah, seat. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fine. Charlotte Eager was an investigative reporter for the Evening Standard newspaper in the mid-2000s. I had a contract with the Evening Standard magazine and I had to produce sort of 
20 pieces or whatever it was of sort of Vanity Fair style investigative journalism a year. And one of them was about Giovanni Di Stefano. But she remembers this story particularly well. But there was always something about this piece that was quite weird and a bit, a bit chilling. It was like going down a rabbit hole. It was completely weird. Charlotte and I are sat just outside the Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand in London. Giovanni's spiritual home, if you like. This is the place where, among other things, convicted criminals go to seek their freedom. And back in the early 2000s, Giovanni De Stefano's name kept appearing alongside all sorts of shady characters. Tell me who Giovanni De Stefano is. Well, I mean, I think he was just a rather glamorous and high-profile lawyer. And he's had this series of dodgy clients. Harold Shipman was one, Milosevic allegedly another, Saddam Hussein another. I mean, they're all pretty dodgy people. Yeah, that's Britain's worst serial killer, Harold Shipman, Slobodan Milosevic, the former Yugoslav president and war criminal, and Saddam Hussein. Yeah, that's Saddam Hussein. In fact, the list of people Giovanni represented is extensive. From warlords to serial killers, paramilitaries to presidents, paedophiles to gangsters, drug lords to bank robbers. I did tell you I was a fan of lists. As we sit there outside the Court of Appeal, lawyers in long black gowns and white wigs stride purposefully past us, briefcase in hand, along with their client's fate. The image projected by the law in England and Wales is a prestigious one. Positions within the legal profession are more often than not held by the upper and middle classes. Lawyers, by and large, were, and still are, establishment figures. Now, granted, that's a wild generalisation which is changing, but basically, Giovanni De Stefano's path to the courtroom made him stand out in a spectacular way. You'd be unsurprised here, I've got a lot of friends who are barristers. You know, I'm a middle-aged woman who went to Oxford. It'd be very surprising if I didn't have friends who are barristers. <laughs> It's an establishment profession, but Giovanni Di Stefano definitely is not an establishment figure. I mean, this is a man who's had a three-part documentary series on Sky made about him. You're doing a podcast. God knows how many people have written about him. He will definitely have a movie made about him. if that's He may well have a movie made about him. But as I start this journey, part of me thinks Giovanni's life has already been a movie, for which he, the mafioso-type consigliere with a particular cockney turn of phrase, has been playing the ludicrous protagonist all along. It's got everything. It's got hubris and nemesis. He's like the classic Greek tragedy figure. And he's got the warmth, the charm that made people like him and want to be his friend and want to believe in him. And then it had war zones and Saddam Hussein and Slobodan Milosevic and drugs. And he couldn't make it up, although he did. If nothing else, Giovanni Di Stefano makes a bloody good story. And as all good stories seem to do, we're going to start right at the ending. The claims just got more and more outrageous. Oh, and I'm definitely going to need some help along the way. I am Rosie Cowan, and in the past I was the former crime correspondent of The Guardian. It was during her time at The Guardian that Rosie Cowan encountered Giovanni De Stefano, a time when he was fast becoming known as the devil's advocate. Giovanni De Stefano first came to my attention in about 2003. He was associated then with the notorious Nicholas van Hoogstraten. 
Nicholas Van Hoogstraten, the dash debonair character, the boy that made it from nowhere to something. Well, that's a quote from Giovanni anyway. The general consensus is that he was a criminal. Rosie Cowan has a more universally accepted perspective on the man. Landlord, property dealer who was thought for many decades to have got his money and his wealth by nefarious means. Van Hoogstraten was once described as Britain's most feared landlord. In the 60s, a judge described him as a sort of self-imagined devil who thinks he's an emissary of Beelzebub. His net worth has been previously placed close to the one billion pound mark. There were some shady dealings in Zimbabwe where he was close pals with Robert Mugabe. And in 2002, he was accused of murdering an associate here in the UK. The jury found him not guilty on that charge, but they did find him guilty of the lesser but still serious charge of manslaughter. But he was freed on appeal on that charge of manslaughter, and it transpired that Di Stefano had represented him. So, out into that mid-afternoon sun steps Giovanni Di Stefano from the Court of Appeal, and in front of the gathered media, well, you've already heard what he had to say. As you are all aware, the appeal of Nicholas Van Hoogstraten was heard today before Lord Justice Rose, Mr Justice McCoon and Mrs Justice Cox. That appeal was successful and the conviction for manslaughter was quashed. And so there's a lot of talk in legal circles about this man and how he'd managed to get Van Hoogstraten freed. Giovanni was building a name for himself. He was starting to become recognisable. Though, as I'd come to learn, he was never one to rest on his laurels. And luckily for him, there always seems to be a criminal in need of a savvy lawyer. Again, with John Goldfinger Palmer, he was associated with timeshare fraud to the tune of tens of millions in Tenerife, where he defrauded many, many pensioners out of their life savings. John Palmer was almost a household name. He was associated with, but never convicted of, receiving gold from the infamous Brinks Mat robbery, where £26 million worth of gold bullion, diamonds and cash was stolen from a warehouse near Heathrow Airport. That's why he became known as Goldfinger. For the timeshare fraud that Rosie mentioned, Palmer was convicted and later ordered to pay somewhere in the region of £30 million plus hand over the keys to a property empire as part of a confiscation order. Along comes Giovanni Di Stefano, and much to the dismay of the legal establishment, he spots an error in the confiscation order served, and Goldfinger keeps his millions. Dismay is probably an understatement, this guy was infuriating, and clearly very good. By taking on clients like Hoogstraten and Palmer, he was defending the indefensible, and he was winning. It was probably time someone made a TV show about this chap. The year is 2003 and Giovanni's gained the attention of TV producers at the BBC. They want to make a documentary following this enigmatic character. And of course, they call the documentary Notorious. And Giovanni was only too happy to play up to the title. Bloody hell, Jeremy Bamber, who else? Five murders. I should be known as Mr. Murder. <laughs> I mean, he almost made himself like the the go-to man for criminals and gangsters and 
drug lords and warlords, you know, you've got to call Giovanni Di Stefano. He'll sort this out. Yeah. So all lawyers have their area of speciality. So if Giovanni Di Stefano's area of speciality was getting quite violent criminals off on technicalities, then it's an area of speciality to have. They've got a right to it. It's, it's a cornerstone of British justice that everyone is entitled to uh, defence. It is. Every criminal, no matter what they've done, is entitled to a lawyer and a defence. These lawyers don't court attention. They just quietly get on with their job, upholding the rule of law. Maybe Giovanni was a stickler for the principle, but he also loved to shock. Whoever the world's baddies were, Di Stefano either claimed that he had represented them, like Saddam Hussein, as I've mentioned, Slobodan Milosevic, or that he would represent them. I mean, he said that he would represent Satan if he had a good case. Giovanni once famously told cameras that he would jump at the chance to represent Adolf Hitler. You know, it seemed like he just had this kind of lust for fame and the more outrageous, the better. Offering to defend Hitler or Saddam Hussein, it kind of, you know, goes to the extreme. If you search the internet hard enough, you can still find the website of his firm, Studio Legale Internazionale, which, according to Google, translates as International Law Firm. Now, fans of true crime, hold on to your hats here, because there, in black and white, he claims to have represented Ian Brady, the Moore's murderer, Ronnie Biggs, the great train robber, Kenny Noy, the road rage killer, John Gilligan, the Irish gangster, and Harold Shipman, Saddam Hussein, Slobodan Milosevic, you've heard about those already. Oh, and Charles Bronson's on that list too, probably the UK's most infamous prisoner and, according to Giovanni, has a good heart and means well. This is from Giovanni's very own YouTube channel. So yeah, calling the documentary notorious was probably the right decision. Giovanni Di Stefano has dealt with a lot of people. A lot of people have dealt with Giovanni Di Stefano. And so I reached out to a lot of people for this podcast. But many of those I reached out to said they didn't want to take part, but they were willing to talk off mic. And from what they told me, a story began to emerge. Back then, people had watched this documentary on the BBC and his name had started spreading. Even some people in prison were able to watch the show while sat in their cell and thought, this is my chance of freedom. They'd call their family on the outside and say, get me this man, get me the devil's advocate. And when prospective clients would meet him, he'd charm them. Because as Charlotte Eager points out... You know, he was charming, you know. Everybody I knew met him. Did say he was charming and great fun. But more than being just great fun, Giovanni would charm them with his apparent competence. He had the ability, that's the key thing. He was very good at what he did. You know, he seems to have got Van Hugenstraten off. You know, he got Palmer off. So he had this gift. If he'd been bad at it, he would have just sunk into complete obscurity. So what's compelling about him was that he had this streak of brilliance. You know, he's a colourful character, a, a great talker, very bombastic, very confident. I think this is you know, part of the reason why some people were taken in by him and that, you know, generally in the world we tend to take things on trust. If somebody tells you they're a doctor, you believe they're a doctor. If they tell you 
they're a lawyer, you believe they're a lawyer. We don't tend to question people's credentials unless we have reason to. Internationally notorious disruptor of the legal profession, criminal lawyer extraordinaire, well... You know, as I began to look into this, the story got stranger. I began to understand just what a tangled web he had woven over the decades. The talk in legal circles was that, you know, this was a strange guy and maybe not even legally qualified. Wait, what? This man who was embarrassing the state in courts up and down the country, winning the unwinnable cases, this man hadn't even passed his law exams. I was amazed. I just thought I was going to be writing a profile of a rather, rather glamorous high society lawyer with an interesting client list. Both Rosie and Charlotte had stumbled across talk that not only had this man embarrassed the establishment, he'd done so with no legal qualifications whatsoever. And he wasn't just portraying himself as a lawyer outside the court, he was doing so in court. In the Nicholas Van Hoogstraten case, Giovanni had signed some documents that only a lawyer could sign. And in that case, the judge had taken issue with it. I mean, anybody can represent you legally. That's the thing. I can ask you to represent me legally. You don't have to be a qualified barrister or a solicitor to do that. But to actually sign court documents, he had portrayed himself as someone who was you know, qualified and able to go before the, the English courts. Uh, and so the Law Society and the police were investigating him. Why did you, in, even in the first place, kind of suspect that this man may not be a lawyer? I must have read it somewhere. And I just started to check. Giovanni was a journalist's dream. So he attracted a lot of attention from a lot of journalists. And many started making inquiries into his right to practice in the UK. He claimed he was an Italian avocato. That's lawyer in Italian. If he's an Italian lawyer, then according to EU law, he'd have every right to practice as a lawyer in the UK too. And that is true, by the way. EC Directive 77-249 said so, as Giovanni will time and time again proudly shout from the rooftops. Everybody in Italy has a title, okay, everybody. So you'll never just miss it. If you've been to university or dottore or dottoressa, you know, everybody has a title. And he was avocato. Because he claimed that he had received his legal qualifications in Italy, where he was actually born, but he'd never produced proof of this. And indeed, when I challenged him on this, I got a very run-around answer that there are so many regions in Italy and he wasn't willing to tell me which university he'd got his law degree from or what year he'd qualified or to which legal body he was affiliated. I mean, those are very simple questions and there are very simple answers. Oh, hi there. I was wondering if you can help me with an inquiry. My, my name's Callum McRae. I'm a reporter from the UK um, and I'm working on a story about a guy who claimed he'd passed the New York State Bar and I'm... I'd heard he may have passed the New York State Bar at some point between 1989 and 1993. Maybe conveniently, those records are very difficult to come by. It all looks a bit smoke and mirrorsy. Okay. That's, that's helpful. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, not actually that helpful. A 
if you have a law degree and you have your qualified lawyer, why not reveal it? But the claims just got more and more outrageous. And we said at one point he claimed that he had a PhD from Cambridge, which is a pretty easy claim to debunk all these universities have records who graduated and qualified there and it turned out that he'd actually worked for a term as a lab technician in Cambridge so there was this kind of Walter Mitty quality where everything got got exaggerated. I mean I tell you what's compelling about Giovanni Di Stefano is there's great pathos to him because he was obviously a brilliant he could have been a brilliant lawyer. There's that thing what is it that takes human beings from the straight and narrow somebody's gifted as that what is it that makes them actually, what kink is it in them that means that they're not happy making an honest, perfectly good career? I mean, I guess people like that just think the rules don't apply to them. He's a proper tragic hero. I mean, it's hubris and nemesis, isn't it? And that's always very, very compelling. You know, Icarus, you fly too high. At this point, if you're like me, then part of you probably chuckles and thinks, well, Good for him. How can a man with no qualifications outlawyer the best-trained legal minds in the country? Credit where credit's due. But of course, Icarus flew too close to the sun. Yeah, no, no worries. No, I understand. I completely understand. Completely. No. Well, all, all the best, and, and yeah, and, and thanks, thanks for thanks for speaking to me. All right. Bye bye. Bye. No luck. As I said earlier, many people who employed Giovanni's services didn't want to speak to me for the podcast, but they did give their reasons. This is not a story as simple as a cheeky Italian chappy play-acting at being a lawyer. It's much, much more complicated than that. Because Giovanni De Stefano caused a whole lot of hurt, emotional and financial, to a whole lot of people. I mean, obviously, there's this kind of almost funny side to him and this kind of totally outrageous, you know, who would believe this? But there's also a very dangerous predatory side to him. I mean, he conned people out of, of their life savings and caused a lot of pain and anguish to people that he got a lot of money out of on the pretext of promising to do certain legal things for people, get them bail when it actually wasn't legally possible to get them bail in, in some cases. I called one of his victims to ask if they would speak on the record. When I mentioned who the story was about, she almost burst into tears. She said, you've no idea what that man did to me and my family. I think in one of the latter cases, he got something like 160 grand out of a couple, which involved their life savings. And in another case, he got 150,000 pounds from a man who lost an arm in a car accident. There are real victims and there's real pain in this story. We're going to jump ahead here because there's loads to get to, but in February 2011 and after a seven-year investigation, Giovanni De Stefano was arrested and later charged with multiple counts of fraud. Nine counts of obtaining a money transfer by deception, eight counts of fraud, three counts of acquiring... All told, there would be 25 charges laid at Giovanni's door. One count of obtaining property by deception and one count of using criminal property. You're a fraud. You're a con man. And your trial is in 
This was a clip of what you could call a sting operation, made by one of the people Giovanni had duped. She tricked him into appearing outside the Court of Appeal on the pretense of a TV interview. Of course he would turn up for that. Yeah, we also have you have there. been punked. Have I? Well done, dear. Well done. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Ted. Bye, Giovanni. Bye-bye, Paul. The jury room at Southwark Crown Court was witness to four hours and ten minutes of deliberations. Giovanni was then found guilty on all charges and later pleaded guilty to four more. Do you think, do you think Giovanni could have existed in, in today's internet age? In the kind of sense that what he did or what he claimed to have done, do you think that could have been possible now? That's a very good question. Um, I think it would be much harder in one way. I'm sure there were others. If, if he was just being a crook, I'm sure there were other scams that he could do now. You know, but I don't think he's that sort of person. I think he likes the limelight. He he, he likes the human contact and the glamorous world and the you know the big I am. And you don't get that sitting behind a computer terminal whipping people off. The trial judge, Alistair McCreeth, had some coarse words for Giovanni as he handed down his sentence. I recognise that you did not actively seek out those who you defrauded. They came to you. You did not approach them, but there is more than one kind of predator. Some predators hunt down their victims. Others lie in wait for them. Your victims in this case were all desperate people and people who, because of their desperation, were vulnerable. Giovanni was given a 14-year custodial sentence, and his response from the dock to the judge, I'm obliged, my lord. His sentence was incredibly long for fraud. But I'm sure it's because he pretended to be a lawyer. And lawyers take that very, very seriously, because if somebody's a lawyer, they are supposedly trustworthy. And he had broken that trust profession-wide. He'd attacked all lawyers by pretending to be one and not being one. And I think that's why they handed out that sentence to him. Now, in the UK, you'd usually serve seven years of that, told to get on your merry way and start making amends for the hurt you caused. Nine years have passed and Giovanni still to this day calls his six by eight foot prison cell home. And we'll get into why in a later episode, I promise. But this really represented an atomic fall from infamy, from notoriety, and an atomic fall from some sort of grace. What do you think motivates someone like Giovanni? Someone you, someone you call a, a con artist? So the great human motivators in life, what are they? They are, you know, access to what money gives you. It's a really interesting psychological question. Respect. Probably one of the most interesting things about this story. Security. Because, you know, we all, uh, like in the crime world, we've come across greedy people and people who want power. Luxury. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly part of it. I think um, he was motivated by wealth and power. Beautiful women. But there's also this kind of this need to be in the public eye and this need to be kind of famous or infamous and be associated with notorious people. And that, that is kind of fascinating because that's not, not normal. <laughs> Being a con man is expensive. You've got to have the look. You've got to be able to at least rent the cars, rent the houses, put down a down payment on the clothes. And that took money. And I, my guess is it was the little bits of money that he conned off 
people that allowed him to actually have the cash flow to move in the higher circles that he was hoping to make the big money out of. There's a gear that's missing, there's a, a boundary that's missing um, that most of us hopefully have, that we don't step over the line. When I was growing up as a, as a teen in a, a small town in Northern Ireland, we had a guy who claimed to be a fireman. At times he claimed to be a police officer and he would kind of... Uh, it sounds crazy, but when the local fire siren would go off, he would jump up from wherever he was in the pub or in a cafe and rush out. And, and we all knew that he wasn't a fireman. He stopped at road accidents and tried to take down people's details and so forth and apportion blame. And, you know, he was kind of like joke figure in town, quite sadly. But the kind of mad thing about somebody like De Stefano is that he has taken that and kind of squared it, multiplied it to the power of 10, to the power of 100, to the power of 1,000. So now he's become this notorious worldwide figure. I think all great con artists must believe part of what they do. And it reminded me a bit of John le Carre's book about his father, you know, the perfect spy. People who have this sort of myth that they build up around themselves and then they they believe in part of it and they have to keep going. If they stop, they, they collapse. If you really go big on your lice, <laughs> that might be when some people doubt you less or it's harder to actually pin you down. It's an absolute minefield. You'll have found this yourself, Callum, with making this, this podcast, just to trace all the bits of the web and connect them all up and find out what the hell's going on with this guy. Yeah, because a notorious lawyer who turned out not to be a lawyer at all, well, that may be the latest chapter in his story. But there were many more fantastical chapters that came before it. We've hardly even begun to scratch the surface. You could take 10 million people and start them off in the same place, and I doubt many of them would even get close to achieving the life's path. So this is where we get to. You know as much as me now that Giovanni will end up going to prison. But Michael wants to figure out what led him to get there. Was it always going to end this way? Or did something happen? He's just an inconspicuous five foot five, five foot six, chubby, balding Italian. You know, coincidences happen and Murphy's Law and everything. But can you be that consistently lucky? I, I believe he had a helping hand along the way. If we're going to do this properly, we need to leave no stone unturned. So, armed with the hard drive and a contacts book to rival anything I've seen before, we set off in pursuit of the truth. And where better to start than the humble beginnings of Giovanni's own childhood in Italy? That's next time. Swindler Saviour Mobster Spy is a What's the Story original production. Our music is supplied by KPM and our lawyers, who are definitely accredited, are Felicity Price and Emily Barber at Reviewed and Cleared. The series is produced and edited by me, Callum McRae, and my executive producers are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, please follow and leave a review.